invite you to take a Bible and turn again to 1 Corinthians. Today we're in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. It's page 955 in these Bibles in the pews. So we get to chapter 6, the latter part that we'll deal with today in chapter 7. It deals a lot with sexual immorality and with, uh, with marriage, principles of marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 is one of the bedrock principles, uh, chapters in the Bible on marriage. And a lot of the background information I, I uh, make reference to is, is coming from a helpful book that just came out a few months ago entitled Sexual Morality in a Christless World. Sexual Morality in a Christless World. But uh, it, it really tells, especially in the first century, um, how things were so different than, than we think about them today and, and that the sexual ethics that were practiced um, it, when the Apostle Paul writes about Christian marriage and how husbands are to treat wives and as we'll see some of these direct words to the Corinthians uh, they were so radical and unlike the, the world the world's ethics in that part of the world basically had been practiced for like a thousand years and uh, so uh, I'll make reference to, to books. I use commentaries and so forth, but that's been real helpful in, in the background. It might be a book you'd want to get, Sexual Morality in a Christless World. Secondly, because this subject matter here is going to deal with, with prostitution that was going on with church members going to the temple prostitutes, uh, don't worry, parents. I'm not going to be real graphic uh, at all. Uh, it is your responsibility to teach. You have the privilege and the responsibility to teach your children all about sex, and preferably dads uh, with their sons and, and moms with their daughters. But you can't look to the youth pastor or the, the school, even a Christian school or, or anyone else. And, and you, ne- you need to make sure that your child feels the freedom to ask you anything they want to ask you. And if you don't think it's the time for an appropriate, an age-appropriate answer at that point, you tell them, I will answer that, but I'm going to wait a few months, or I'm going to wait till a certain time. But, but you never want to put them down for asking questions. You don't want to say that's not something we don't talk about. Because they're going to get the answers, and you want them coming from you. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's what needs to happen. Uh, many of us, we found things out uh, not from our parents, uh, but from uh, some from pretty uh, dicey sources, perhaps. So don't worry, I'm not here to educate your kids in these sermons on that, but I, I do want to deal accurately with the passage. Uh, so we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just a brief reminder, if you've not been with us before, the Apostle Paul had planted this church in this metropolitan city of Corinth. It was very Greek. Uh, the, the city was, it was a large city. It was a port city, kind of everything. All the cultures were there. He had gone there, stayed a year and a half, planted the church, saw people come to Christ, trained leaders, then he moved on to the city of Ephesus. Sometime later, he's writing back, because they've sent him at least one letter. Really, this is uh, uh, maybe several letters, and he's heard that there's divisions in the church, there's all sorts of sin happening in the church, and uh, there's some particular issues. And we're in the third of those issues today. Uh, the the first issue we saw in chapter 5 was, was there was a guy that was... Uh, practicing an incestuous relationship with his uh, stepmother. Last week at the first part of chapter 6, he deals with the fact that, that a number of members were suing each other in civil court. They weren't trying to solve their, their grievances among themselves, but they immediately were running off to the secular courts. 
And now today we're going to see another issue. Follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that we would give you, give, you would give us understanding now about our bodies that you have given to us and how you view them. And we pray that, that you would be glorified, that the gospel of Christ would be lifted up even during this, this message. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, having lived here so long, a number of people that do not attend this church that I'm acquainted with know I'm a pastor. And so it's pretty, pretty common almost every week somebody will say, Hey, pastor, how are things at the church? Now, do they want to report? No. They want to, well, things are fine. Okay, good to see you too, and let's move on. But sometimes if I want to have a little fun with the person, if I know them pretty well, I'll say, you know, it's really amazing. All the marriages are perfect. The kids are totally obedient. Everybody's happy. There's no disunity. The sermons are just right dead on every week. And I just look at them in the face, and they're like, what are you describing? But what if I were to say, do you really want to know? Yeah, I really want to know. How are things at the church? Well, two weeks ago, we dealt with an incestuous relationship that had been going on for a long time that a lot of people were real proud about. We've got several members taking each other to suit, to court to sue each other. Oh, oh, and we've got some, well, really more some, it's many of our members are visiting prostitutes up at the temple on the hill. And that person might say, what church do you pastor? And my answer would be, well, I pastor the church at Corinth. Because that's what was happening there. I'm not making up a hypothetical situation. These, there was great immorality in the church, and it's being justified with slogans. You've got to be careful about slogan Christianity. I know one of the most popular slogans, and it may mean a lot to you, and you perhaps live your life this way, but I want you to rethink it, and that is, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Listen, when you read through the Gospels, what Jesus did often was never what we would do. You know, he turned over temple uh, tables in the temple with the money changers and, and, and made a whip to run them out. He rebuked the religious leaders. He forgives the woman that everybody wants condemned about adultery. I mean, he, he, he rarely did what we would think Jesus would do. And so you've got to be careful if that's your guiding principle. I'd say go to the scriptures and find out what Jesus did. Then if you want to draw some life lessons from it, that's fine. But they were living according to a slogan, and that slogan that was being practiced with their immorality or being used to justify it was all things are lawful. 
That's why it's in quotation marks. We don't know where it came from. Uh, Maybe it was kind of a a twist of uh, we live by grace, you know, and we're not under law. Uh, But Paul takes their slogan and he adds to it. He adds the words, yes, all things are lawful, but then he adds, but not all things are helpful or profitable or beneficial. And that is your actions, even your lawful actions, um, affect other people's lives. And sometimes we'll make the determination, you know, I could do that action. There's nothing sinful about it, and I'm at liberty to do that. But with those people, it would be wiser it would be more beneficial not to do it. That's Christian liberty. The liberty to do it or not to do it. Then he repeats the phrase, all things are lawful, and he adds, but I will not be dominated by anything. So there are good things. God has given us desires, natural desires, natural appetites that we in liberty may satisfy as Christians in our Christian liberty. Eating and drinking should be done in moderation, and sex is to be enjoyed within the commitment of marriage. And so it's lawful to eat. Uh, But that does not mean that I have the freedom to become a glutton and to be controlled by food. You can be enslaved by many things. And so he says, yeah, all things are lawful, but I'm not going to be mastered. I'm not going to be dominated by anything. You could be dominated with television or with sports or... Uh, caffeine or compulsive spending or even exercise. I was watching an interview some time ago with a movie star, and uh, an action movie star, and he, he said at one time in his life years ago, he'd gotten where he was working out at the gym seven hours a day. Now, some of us might could use more of that, but he even told the interviewer, I was controlled. He said, I was addicted. My whole life was out of balance and how much time I was spending on that. And so that can happen to us. I've quoted William Barclay several times in this series, and Lord willing, we'll continue to do so. But here's what he says about this phrase. It is Paul's insistence that though he is free to do anything, he will let nothing master him. The great fact of the Christian faith is that it makes a person... Not that it makes a person free to sin, but that it makes a person free not to sin. It is so easy to allow habits and practices and ways of life to master us, but Christian strength enables us to master them. So we can be in control of our desires and so forth. Well, in verse 13, still in verse 13, they were, the Corinthians were reasoning something like this. Hey, if your body has a desire, satisfy it. If, if it's food, if you're hungry, feed it. If you have a sex drive, satisfy it. It was an ancient version of if it feels good, do it. And so they were saying God made the stomach for food, didn't he? It's natural to eat. Well, if God provided us with this sexual capacity, it's just as natural to satisfy that. And notice how Paul approaches that logic. He says food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. He agrees that when, Paul agrees that when you're hungry, you should eat. But he draws the line when they try to take that same principle, that same principle and apply it in the sexual area. Just because we have certain desires, if we have certain equipment, you might say, that God's given us, doesn't mean that we're always to use it. Imagine a, a policeman who walks up and down the street and he's to watch for people that are parked in wrong places and double parked. And he may be 
walking along there and he's got a gun and he's got a 38 right there and he says you know I've got this gun and that car's double parked I'm just going to use it so he shoots the tires out you know and puts a few holes in the windshield said I'll get their attention they won't park there again you'll say wait a minute just because you have the equipment doesn't mean you ought to use it and that's what Paul is saying just because God's given you a desire that desire should be used within a certain sphere so what I like here so much, beginning in verse 13, when he says the body was not made for sexual immorality, which is a very broad term. It's the word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. It means any sexual activity outside of marriage. That's what it means. It's a, it's a broad term. And what he gives them is not just a don't do this. He's saying you are not understanding and comprehending your bodies correctly. So what he's going to teach here is what is the Christian view of your body? How do we think biblically about our bodies? People through history have had difficulty in this understanding. What is, and they've wrestled with the question, what is the connection between the body, if you want to call it the soul or the spirit, whatever they call it, but there's like an inner person and then the outer person. What is the connection between the body and the soul? In our day, where's the emphasis? Without a doubt, a doubt. in our culture, it's on the body. The advertising, so much of advertising and so many products are pitched toward cleaning your body or beautifying your body or protecting your body or preserving your body or making it healthy or, or pleasing your body or, or feeding your body or ensuring your body or whatever it may be. That's where our emphasis is. Now, the Corinthians believed, like most other Greeks and Romans, that the body was just like a prison. And it was a prison that held the soul inside of it. And so the body itself, they believed, had no moral value. But because it had these sensual appetites, it seduced the soul and dragged the soul, you might say, down into the gutter. Now, that philosophy led to two schools of thought. One was asceticism. And asceticism said, well, what I need to do then is to discipline myself. I will impose on myself rigorous, harsh self-discipline and bring my body under control to curb its desires. The other group, the opposite group, you can imagine, if these were the ascetics, were the hedonists that they believed since only the soul would survive, it didn't matter what I do with my body. So they gave their body every opportunity to quench its desires, sexual desires, all sorts of desires. Now, which view do you think had influenced the Christians in the church at Corinth? Hedonism. That's, what, that's where they were coming from, that the separation of the soul from the body and what I do with the body is of no consequence. What's most important is the soul. So Paul teaches them about the body. And we're going to see like four, four key points here he tells about the body. What does, how does God want you to see your body? One, our bodies will be raised by God. We see that in verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Even as God raised Christ physically from the dead. And this chapter is not an apologetic for that. That comes over in chapter 15 where he talks about the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus and the implications of that. 
This point here is that even as God raised Christ physically, bodily from the grave, so he will do the same for us. If you attend a Christian funeral service, or when you've attended Christian funeral services, and I as a pastor and other pastors, the Christian tradition has a committal of the body to the grave. And the words go something like, now we, we commit our brother or sister to the grave, looking to that great day when God himself will raise our lowly bodies to be transformed bodies. And so we, that's what the committal is for, that it's honoring the body, but recognizing God will raise it one day to be a glorified body. Philippians chapter 3 addresses this. We eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies. That's these earthly bodies. They're called lowly. He'll transform them so that they will be like his glorious bodies. So our bodies, get this, and this may shock some of you, our body, your body, Christian, in a glorified state, will carry your eternal and glorious, pure soul through eternity in a glorified state. Now, that immediately raises, what will I look like? What, will everybody, what age will everybody? Well, read Randy Alcorn's book. I'm not getting into that now. But I want you to know that as, as God raised Christ, so he'll raise our bodies. Secondly, our bodies have been joined to Christ. Verse 15, do you not know? Here's a rhetorical question. It assumes they had heard Paul teach on this when he was with them sometime before. Do you not know? In other words, don't you remember? Let me refresh your memories. Your body is a physical extension of Christ. It says in verse 15, our bodies are members of Christ. Members is another word like we use for parts of the body or limbs of the body. So Christ uses our physical bodies here on this earth to further his gospel, to share the gospel with others, to invite people to hear the gospel, to serve him with our hands. He is our head, we are his hands and feet, and his eyes and ears, you might say. So we are extensions of his body. And then in verse 15, the latter part, he, he asks another rhetorical question. If this is so, if we are members of his body, shall I take the members of Christ's body, take the parts of his body, and make them members of a prostitute? That's the particular issue he's dealing with. In the Greek culture of that day, prostitution was, was not only legal, it was permissible. So he's contrasting this fellowship in Christ between the believer and the sinful lust of the person who has relations with a prostitute. And then he answers his own question. Never. The New Jerusalem Bible says, out of the question, this should not happen, that you join your body, a part of the body of Christ with a prostitute. Then he asks another question in verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. And there he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That's the account of the creation of marriage. There's Adam and Eve, and, and God creates marriage and says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The two become one flesh, talking about the sexual union. I, I mentioned this at 830 or at 9 or whatever. I don't know, my mind... Have you read all the effects of going to daylight savings time? Increased heart attacks across our country, more car wrecks, 
And right now, discombobulated sermons. I can't, it was at nine o'clock. And I remember that Barb and I one time got a wedding invitation. I hope it was not from one of you. And it quoted the last part of Genesis 2.24 in the wedding invitation. And the two will become one flesh. And then it went on to say, you are invited on such and such a date at such and such a time to witness the fulfillment of this passage. <laughs> and I just, I read, I read it and I said to Barbara, this ought to be interesting. <laughs> now that's one wedding I don't want to miss. So what I often say to, to couples uh, in marriage counseling or premarital counseling is that the sexual union is to be the physical representation of a spiritual reality. The physical representation of a spirituality, that there becomes a oneness based on the oneness of emotion, a oneness of spiritual direction, a oneness of lifelong commitment. So God intended it to be like the superglue in the relationship. And so when men and women join their bodies, the entire person is involved. And the word body there is more extensive than just the word flesh and blood. It's your total person, the total personality. There's a oneness that, that comes with this that brings deep and lasting consequences. And so that's why in verse 18, Paul says that sexual sin is so, so serious. He's not saying it's the worst thing you can do to your body. I mean, you can think of a lot of things you could do to destroy your body. What he means is sex is not just something that's done externally with the body. It affects the total personality since it involves something so deep in a person. So verse 18, he says, rather than going up to the temple prostitutes, flee sexual immorality. God created sex. He designed it to be enjoyed in marriage. It can be stabilizing, satisfying, beautiful, but when... So when we come to the Lord's advice for avoiding it, it outside of marriage, the, he just says, flee. Don't try and reason your way out of it. Now, the fourth observation, the fourth observation about our bodies is that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, what does that mean? Verse 19 says, the Spirit of the Lord lives within individual Christians in verse uh, 17 as well. And you are not your own. In the Old Testament, God commissioned David, King David, to build a temple. Though David himself was not to build it, his son Solomon was, uh, God would dwell there, and the word for dwell was sanctuary. God would sanctuary in this temple. Now, every believer individually, the Holy Spirit comes in and sanctuaries he dwells within us. We are, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, corporately, First Presbyterian Church, the church worldwide, is also called the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it's used for us individually. And so we, in the Presbyterian Church, refer to this meeting room as a sanctuary. And literally that means a place where God dwells. Now with the minimal amount of theology, we know that, well, God doesn't dwell here like he did in the Old Testament temple. He doesn't express his presence here like he did at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle in the wilderness. We know that God is everywhere. And uh, God is in his people. The kingdom of God is among you. And yet this is a place set aside, dedicated for the worship of God. Now imagine if, if you came into this room and a movie was shown and it's, a, it's an X-rated, violent, profane 
movie using God's name in vain all through it and just all sorts of garbage. And it was shown in here up on somewhere on the organ pipes. But it's shown in here. You would probably think the movie's bad enough, but what's worse is look where it's being shown in, in the sanctuary of God. That's kind of the idea. Paul is saying your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and what you do with it matters. Going off to the, see the temple prostitutes, it's, it's profaning in and of itself, he's saying, because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Well, how did we become this? How do our bodies become sanctuaries of the Holy Spirit? Well, the last verses tell us. He bought us. We've been bought with a price. And the image is being bought off a slave block. That's the picture. It's also in Romans. And the value of something, of something, as you know, is determined by what someone's willing to pay for. A loaf of bread, when there's plenty, it costs one thing. But then when there's one loaf of bread and nobody else has any bread, then suddenly that becomes much more valuable and people will pay a lot more for it. So what you pay for something shows how important it is to you. Just imagine if I were to, my wife's birthday, though it's not coming up till the summer, but what, Barbara, if I were to come home one day and I had a box that held some jewelry, and I said, Barbara, I want to give you something for your birthday. It's this, it's this ring. And, uh, and, you know, and she loves the ring and says, how, how did you get that? And I said, well, I started three years ago. And I started, I, I said, I made a little box, and I started saving money. And every time I was in the McDonald's drive-through, and they said, "You want to large that? You want to make that? A, you want to upsize that?" No, no, I'm, I'm going to save that money, or I want to. That's supposed to be funny. Nobody laughed at that. But anyway, so I, I sacrifice in all these life-changing ways, and I saved this money for three years, and I got enough money, and I went down to the finest jewelry in town, and I bought this ring. Oh, thank you, Chip, so much. Imagine contrast that with, well, Chip, where'd you get it? <laughs> you know something. The other day I was walking through Walmart. You know that shelf in the back, the return items? They happened to have a fire and water damage sale. And this ring was there. And it had been in a fire and nobody wanted it. I got this thing for $18. Which would she appreciate more? You know the answer to that. What's God saying here? You've been bought. Bought with what? I mean, we hear the term bought. We've been bought and it sounds... It sounds negative. Um, we have a daughter that played two years of college sports on a scholarship, and I heard someone say the closest thing to legalized slavery in America is an athlete on a college scholarship in America today. There's a lot of truth to that. And I remember when she, when she first got there, I, I was asking, have you been able to do this or do that? No, no, Daddy, they own me. And it was said like it's the worst news in the world. And so when it says, you've been bought with a price... He owns me. No, it's you've been bought. Your body's been purchased. And guess what the price was? It wasn't three years worth of savings. It, it wasn't uh, uh, things that you can hold in your hands. It was the precious blood of God's Son. Now, does that tell you how valuable you are? It should. That'll do number, a number on your self-image. Do you think your body is not important? and you look in the mirror every day and you despise yourself, it's been purchased with the blood of his son. Now, I'll, those of you I know, I really do love many of you. And those that I don't know, I, 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 that didn't come out right. But I mean, I, I love, <laughs> you get the idea. 
But I can promise you this. If it boiled down to you or one of my sons, me giving up one of my sons for you to live, I wouldn't do it, and you wouldn't do it for me. So Paul is telling them, God loves you. God has bought you. And it, why are you getting involved with this immorality? And it's not just a hammer like, don't do it, don't do it. He's saying, because your body's going to be raised again. You're, you're members of the body of Christ. And, and you've been purchased. And you've been purchased with the flesh and blood, with the blood of his precious son. You know Christ today? It's not complicated. John 1.12, many of you have heard it. You've got it memorized. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Let's pray together. Father, we, we often don't think right about our bodies, and because of that, we, we follow their desires that go in a sinful direction. So we, we pray for more of a value of the bodies you've given to us, recognizing that in some kind of glorified state that we don't really understand, they're going to be ours for eternity, but to serve you, and they'll be sinless one day, and they'll be perfect. And so help us, and we pray that if someone here is, is burdened with great guilt, especially in the, the sexual area, that you might let them know that that's covered with the blood of Christ. This is not an unforgivable sin. And may we walk out of here as, as freshly forgiven and reminded of the purchase price of the blood of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.